Okay. Um, numbers 33, or Numbers 34, Numbers 35 is what we'll try to go through this evening. Uh, numbers 34 is a lot about geography and about boundaries. And John has put this map on the board for us. Uh, we will appeal to this. I brought some atlases and we'll say a couple of things about them in a moment. But the boundaries of Canaan. Uh, first of all, the, it mentions uh, the southern, southern, western, south boundary in verses 3 through 5. The western boundary in verse 6. The northern boundary in 7 through 9. And then the eastern boundary in verses 10 through 12. Let's make it easy as we start. Uh, Verse 6, the great sea or the Mediterranean Sea is the western boundary. And so um, this is all, if it was different colors, this would all be blue, uh, indicating water, and this was their western boundary. Pretty easy to get that one down. Later in Israel's history, though, uh, there will come a people from the sea around 1200 B.C. and occupy much of the coast and take their territory, and that will be who? Philistines. The Philistines will do that. But their territory went all the way to the Mediterranean. Now, southern boundary, uh, one of the places, it's, it mentions a couple of times that there's a mention of the Salt Sea in this, both in verse 3 and verse 12. The Salt Sea is the Dead Sea. and um, But it's so salty, things can't live. And um, But it's mentioned... In verse 3, Kadesh Barnea is mentioned. And the brook of Egypt is mentioned. So that is part of the southern boundary. You see it like here. You see Kadesh Barnea. You see uh, the brook of Egypt mentioned. In the northern boundary, in verses 7 through 9, um, there is mention a Mount Hor in verse 8. Okay, John, you got a question on your face, and I bet I know what that question is, but I'm going to let you ask it. Well, we've studied about Mount Hor, but I did not think it was to the north. Okay, I think that there are two places here that are called Mount Hor in close proximity. That there was a Mount Hor on this side of the river where Aaron died in Numbers 20, verses 22 through 29, and Numbers 33, uh, 37 through 39. But this, there's also a Mount Hor on this side of the river. Now that's, that's one of the things that is confusing about biblical geography. Is because often within a close proximity, you're going to find a couple of places by the same name. And, you know, I had lived my, um, I had lived one time seven years, we lived in a little town in Tennessee called Fairview, Tennessee. And I, and I realized 
one time when I was in a meeting in Alabama, there's some places right along the Alabama Tennessee coast, also then Fairview. I mean, how many, it should be illegal. Uh, really, people, it should be illegal for a state to have a place uh, with the same name, you know, that relatively close together. But it is confusing with geography. The place I think of most readily in the north is that place, Lebo Hamoth. Hamoth will later be associated with the people of Damascus. But but this territory, you notice how this goes way beyond the Sea of Galilee. I mean, it really extends up here as far as how north Israel's territory was would be. Now, verses 10 through 12, again, contain a couple of names. You're familiar with them, but maybe not by this name. For example, the Sea of Chinnereth in verse in verse 11. Sea of Chinnereth is what we know in the New Testament as the Sea of Galilee. Or Lake Genesaret, it is called in Luke 5.1. But the Sea of Galilee is what it's most commonly called. And of course, the Sea of Galilee goes down to the uh, Dead Sea. And so, um, the Sea, we'll call them by the names that we may be more familiar with, the Sea of Galilee, uh, the, uh, the Dead Sea. These are a couple of their boundaries on the east. Now, let's, let's look at, at a statement in Israel's history. First Kings 8. Verse 65, 1 Kings 8, it is a moment in Israel's history where all seems right with the world. Uh, 1 Kings 11 is going to tell us Solomon marrying many strange women who turned his heart away. But in 1 Kings 8, the people have dedicated the temple of the Lord and God has moved in to the temple. In 1 Kings 8, verses 10 and 11, the glory of God, God fills the house. The priests are not able to minister there. But in 1 Kings 8, and verse 65, the Bible tells us Solomon observed the feast at that time, and all Israel with him, and a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God. For seven days and seven more days, even 14 days. Do you notice that as the Bible is talking about Solomon's reign, it uses these boundary marks of Israel from the entrance of Hamath, a far northern part, to the brook of Egypt, a far southern point. Israel controls more land here in the time of Solomon than they do at any time, really, in their history. Now, there was one time in the divided kingdom period that they come close to this, maybe do this. Would you know who would be the kings of Israel and Judah at that time? I'm going to guess Jehoshaphat and Ahab. Okay. Uh, they, they were powerful kings. 
but they don't seem to have that much land. Look at look at Second Kings fourteen. Second Kings fourteen. Jonah, the son of Amittai. You've heard of you've heard of him. Well, this is the only reference to him outside of his book. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, it was the reign of Jeroboam in Judah, or excuse me, Jeroboam in Israel, and Azariah or Uzziah in Judah. And I want you to see what Jonah prophesied in 2 Kings 14.25. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the sea of the Arabah. But it mentions Israel's northern boundary here in Jeroboam's time. Now, because Jeroboam is not also king of Judah, Uzziah or um, Azariah is king of Judah, it says the brook of the, it says the, the brook of the Arabah, it may be a reference that to some kind of brook off the Dead Sea or the Sea of the Arabah. But, but, but what he is doing, he is giving the divided kingdom equivalent to the Lebo-Hamoth to the brook of Egypt. Hamoth, the entrance of Hamoth to the brook of the Arabah. Now, what's interesting about that, Jonah is the one who's making that prophecy. You know from the book of Jonah... Jonah loves his people. Jonah wants Assyria destroyed. The reason that Jeroboam II was able to have that much property is because this was a period of Assyrian decline. And the people may have been hopeful this is the last we're ever going to hear of Assyria. And Jonah is afraid going to preach to them and giving them an opportunity to repent is going to be a chance for them to be restored. And indeed, that is what happens. And ultimately, Nahum is the preacher Jonah wanted to be because he preaches nothing but the fact Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Now, I also want you to notice how one of the minor prophets makes a reference to this. Amos 6 and verse 14. Amos 6 verse 14. Amos preaches during the time of Jeroboam II. During this time of prosperity. And Jeroboam II, his dates are from 793 to 753. 793 to 753. But Amos 6.14 For behold, I'm going to raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. Now the point is, you possess all this land, but you haven't possessed land like this in a long, long time. This is the most land that they'd ever possessed in the dividing kingdom period. But now God says He's going to raise up an enemy who's going to oppress them in all of that land. And that enemy will ultimately be Assyria. Not mentioned by name in the book of Amos, but they will be the nation that will later fulfill that role. But what I'm trying to say 
is even just a little bit of knowledge of the geography helps you to appreciate those three passages. 1 Kings uh, 8, verse 65, 2 Kings 14, verse 25, and Amos 6, and verse 14. And I'm sure uh, others might be included, but those are some that are important in the list. What questions do you all have about that. Is this noteworthy at all about God's view of um, Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh? This is after they ask, correct? Yes, it seems to be after they ask. They are given their allotment here in verses 13 through 15. They're given their allotment. But but yes, this is giving the boundaries of the land without really taking this into consideration. And um, so they, uh, the allotment of their land was spelled out a little bit there at the end of Numbers 32. Uh, but yes, it is significant. Remember what happens when Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh go back. It's recorded in Joshua 22. What happens, they had gone, they fought for their brothers, and they get here, and they get to the Jordan River, and they build a huge altar. And the other tribes are ready to go to war with them because there's to be one altar in the land and that is where sacrifices are brought. But before they go to war, they send a delegation. They ask before they go to battle. And they said, listen, if you've done this thing, if you've committed this sin, if you don't feel like you're one with us because you're on the other side of the Jordan then you come and we'll divide this land with you. And that's the reason I'm bringing up the story right now, Karen. Because Joshua 20, they say, we'll divide the land with you. Of course, what happens is the tribes say, we did not build this altar to offer burnt offerings or sacrifices. We built this as a symbol of our unity. Because in future days, because this river divides us, your children may say to our children, you're not one with us, you're not one people. And this altar is a reminder of, of the unity that exists between us. Now, what happens in verses 16 through 29 is men from the tribes are charged with dividing the land. God is the one who makes the choice in these men, it seems like to me. Verse 16, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, uh, these are the names of the men who shall apportion the land for you for inheritance. God is the one selecting them. He does not, Karen, to your point, does not select anybody from Reuben, does not select anybody from Gad, And he mentions Manasseh, but we suppose that is the part of Manasseh which has crossed over the land. In verse 23, Manasseh is mentioned. Now of these names that are mentioned here, the only one that we know elsewhere in the Old Testament is Caleb in verse 19, who is associated with the tribe of Judah. Let me make a brief point here. About, I brought with me four of, I think, the better out, atlases out there. Um, if you don't have a good Bible atlas, they can be helpful to you in, in studying the Bible. Here is 
the Holman's Bible Atlas. None of them, by the way, did great on number 34. Okay? Uh, so it will not answer your every question. But they can be helpful. I used to use this uh, in teaching college and freshman Bible when assigned a book. Uh, Becky and Andy, I'm sure, still have yours. Um, and uh, But... Uh, it, it is a is a helpful book. It is with good explan. It's good maps, good color maps with good uh, explanations. You look over, Brian. You got yours too. You do. Brian's saying he does have his. And um, and somebody else, Karen. What about it? I was the McClister girl. Probably just went straight to the New Testament, but anyway. But, uh, but, but nonetheless, uh, but uh, this these this is a good this is a good. Let me mention first of all these three: um, Adam, I mean Josh. Still got yours. Yeah, I actually have two. Oh, good. Thanks, Karen. You get Karen's too. This is a good book. It is a good book. These three: the Holman's Bible Atlas, the Moody Bible Atlas, the Zondervan NIV Bible Atlas, all approach the Scripture as inspired of God. And so their explanations are going to reflect that. I did also bring this atlas. The, it's called the Macmillan Bible Atlas. It, it, in some ways, it has more maps than any. They are not usually color. Uh, a lot of times they're... But their explanations... They they do not have the high view of scripture. They don't have a real low view compared to some out there, but they don't have the view that every word is from God the way these three do. But again, if you want to look over any of these afterwards, that's why they're here. And if it can help you in your study, um, then then um, I hope I hope it can. Any, but any questions right there? Any, John? So the first few uh, men are not referred to as leaders, but then you get to a certain point, like the third or fourth, and then it says a leader, and then mentions them. So mm-hmm. it picks up. It looks like in in uh, twenty two, but you, yes, you got a couple of guys that uh, they were. Not maybe held up as high. Uh, it's hard to make that argument with Caleb, you know, because he's been a leader the whole time. Uh, from and he 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 spans both generations, uh, doesn't he? Was was he the one that was picked? I know he was the one picked as a spy. I don't. I'm looking in Numbers one to see. No, he was not picked in that situation. He was not picked, but. There's got to be a point to that, John, but I have to acknowledge that I did not recognize that you're right. In verse 22, it begins picking up, using that phrase, uses it all the way to verse 28, looks like, but it is not used in 19 through 21. And, and again, I encourage you to carefully read the text. I do think there's probably something to that, but what it is and what it means, I, I don't know. Good point. Anything else? Okay. 
Now, when we divide up the map, and one of the things all these maps do well, really well, is the division of the tribes in Joshua. They to get an idea of where each tribe was. All of those maps, all those atlases, do well with that. But numbers, numbers thirty-four, we haven't gotten to that point yet. This this is the group that's going to do it, but the land will be divided in Joshua after they fought for it. Numbers thirty-five, one through eight, deals with Levi. And what happened with the tribe of Levi? The Levi did not have a specific land allotment. What happened with them? They got cities. Cities, how many? 48. 48 cities scattered throughout the land of Judah. There are some that we have difficulty uh, identifying precisely where they are. But again, some of these atlases do a good job of making special marks by those um, Levitical cities. 48 of them. Uh, six, uh, six of those 48 are going to be cities of refuge. So, um, there's a rough map here um, of, the, of the land. But, but Levi is scattered all throughout the land. And there are going to be three <coughs> cities of refuge that will be a big part of our discussion. Where if you're on other, either side of the Jordan and you kill someone, you can flee to these cities. And, and this was not to be, this map is not to be so precise as used for fleeing in time of crisis. But, <laughs> but you get the idea of how the, the cities were to be separated. But the 48 cities are just mentioned here, in verses 1 through 3, the Levites are given cities, they're given pasture lands, they have their own cattle and their own herds, according to verse 3. Their own cattle, their own herds. Verse 4, the pasture lands of the cities which you give to the Levite shall extend from the wall of the city onward a thousand cubits around. And you shall measure outside the city on the east 2,000 cubits, the south 2,000 cubits, the west 2,000 cubits, and the north side 2,000 cubits. Now, what Wynnum argued is that what you have is you have the city and then they are given like a thousand cubits on each side. This kind of works out the the problem of how to so you get a, a thousand cubits on each side, which in all would be a couple of thousand cubits when you add them together, and therefore uh, that this is what is talked about. Each city of the Levites has uh, this kind of dimension, and included in those forty-eight cities are six of these cities of refuge. Six of these cities. And that is going to occupy a lot of our discussion in Numbers chapter 35. And um, But the, the larger tribes, they may give more cities to the Levites. And uh, the lesser tribes that don't have as much territory, they may give lesser parts. The, the nation as a whole... Israel as a nation as a whole were to be preached to the Lord. And the Levites, I think, too, are spread throughout the nation 
ideally, where they will eat, they will be a good influence on all the people throughout the land. Does it always work out that way? No. But, but I think ideally, that is the purpose. So 48 cities and 6 of these are cities of refuge. Now we're going to slow down as we get to verse 9. Verses 9 through 15. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select for yourselves cities to be your cities of refuge, that the manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee there. The city shall be to you as a refuge to the avenger, so that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for trial. The cities which you are to give shall be six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities across the Jordan, three cities in the land of Canaan. They are cities of refuge. These six cities shall be refuge to the sons of Israel, for the alien and the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person unintentionally may flee there. Now these cities of refuge aren't all placed together, as we try to illustrate by these dots. Wherever you are in an area and you accidentally kill someone, it was not an act of murder. You could flee here and find refuge. It is assumed, and and I don't know how much evidence there is of this, but a lot of writers assume that this, this, this was largely an ancient Near Eastern practice and that when you took the life of someone in a family, Someone in a family avenged that wrong. Some think that the big step the Bible takes is making a distinction between what this passage will talk about as a manslayer and as a murderer. The cold-blooded murderer is put to death. The one who kills a friend accidentally, and some of those situations will be described here and described elsewhere in the Old Testament. Uh, they... They are different. A person then goes to the city of refuge. David, do you have a question? Now, there are a couple of phrases here um, that catch our attention. We may pause and leave the discussion of the avenger of blood, but we're going to come back to that because that is very pivotal to this whole chapter, this concept of the avenger of blood uh, in verse verse 12. I want you also to see as we go through this, and, and, and there's a reason I've paid attention to this over the years because of a discussion I got in about the Bible and law one time, uh, even in a high school a context, where it's interesting to see the Bible does have a sense of, of justice. For example, in verse 12, the city shall be as a refuge for the avenger so the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for trial. There is a system of trial and hearing cases in biblical law. Pay attention to those little facts as we go throughout Numbers 
Numbers 35. But we also want to notice that this city of refuge is mentioned as a place in verse 11, in verse 15, for someone who kills another unintentionally. He kills another unintentionally. Now, we're going to let the context define some of that. But this word, I found it used 19 times in the Old Testament. It is used, among those times it's used is Joshua 20, verse 3, Joshua 20, verse 9. When it's used in that context, it is the same situation here. Joshua 20 is talking about dividing up those cities of refuge. So, so, so it's used four of the 19 times it's used. It's used of killing someone unintentionally. Uh, the other times it's used in the Old Testament, now there, there are two exceptions to this, but all the other times it's used in the New Testament is in either Numbers 15 or, um, or Leviticus, but, but, all but one of the references is in Leviticus is in Leviticus 4 or 5. So Leviticus 4 and 5, Numbers 15, verses 22 through 31, contain most of these references. They offered the, uh, they offered the sin offering when they sinned unintentionally in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 2. Or the guilt offering in Leviticus 5, 15, when they sinned unintentionally. And then uh, in Numbers 15, it's the same case. Remember, if you sin with a high hand in Numbers 15, there's no sacrifice. But if you sin unintentionally, it was a different situation. But again, we're going to let the context describe and define some of this, okay? Now, understanding we're going to come back to this avenger of blood. Do you have a question about anything else in 9 through 15? I like the fact that it does point out the alien and the sojourner among them. Oh, yes. I mean, it does that somewhere earlier that I remember, but I can't remember. Well, it does it quite a bit at important aspects, but this shows the alien and stranger have certain rights among you, and they are not to be abused. They're not to be abused because they're dealing with you. There are questions about uh, immigration. I understand people standing on both sides of, of that issue. But, but, but what I'm about to tell you should be a given that we should all understand. Uh, I, I know a person that told me that he witnessed that because some people were Spanish and did not speak English well, that they came into a place of business and he saw some take advantage of them monetarily and kind of be laughing about it because they didn't understand the language uh, about it. Now, now listen, there's there's no room for debate right there. 
among Christians. And we don't treat people like that. We treat them the way that we would want to be treated. And and, and by the way, when I was in Russia the first time and, and Boyd was, was with me, we had some people do that to us. It was, and they, they were charging something for bananas that seemed seemed awfully high for Russian prices. When we paid it, they were starting to laugh. You know, we got a pretty good idea. We got took. You know, and we did have the money to pay it. But but that's that's you feel you feel kind of bad in that position, even if you do have the money to pay it. And um, so, but but Sarah, I think you make a very good point. Now, I wanted to call attention to that: how even the least under the law were given that amount of protection. Uh, and I'll give you uh, if if we get the notes looking good. We'll send the notes out and you'll see other cases where it invokes the alien and stranger as well. But, but verses 16 through 21, what 16 through 21 are going to give cases of murder. Now these cases of murder, the text emphasizes he shall surely be put to death. And he gives, sometimes it deals with the weapon you had in your hand. In verse 17 through 16 through 18. But if you struck him with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. If he struck him with a stone in his hand by which he may die, and as a result he died, he is a murderer, and the murderer shall surely be put to death. If he struck him with a wooden object in his hand by which he may die, and as a result he died, he is a murderer, the murderer shall surely be put to death. So in these cases, this iron object, uh, this, uh, this stone, this wooden object, all of these cases, uh, this is an indication that this was intentional, that this was an act of malice. Some cases didn't necessarily involve an extra weapon. Uh, but there was known enmity between the parties. In verse 20 and verse 21, if he pushed him of hatred or threw something at him lying in wait and as a result he died, or if he struck him down with his hand in enmity, as a result he died, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer. The blood avenger shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. So in verses 16 through 18, you can tell murder by the object in your hand. In verses 19 and verses 20 and 21, here it was because of hatred. It was because of enmity in this case. And so these reasons you were regarded as guilty. Now, in verses 22 and 23, but if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or threw something at him without lying in wait or with any deadly 
deadly object of stone and without seeing it dropped it on him so that he died while he was not his enemy nor seeking his injury. Okay, so this gives a case, verses 22 and 23, that fall under this category of a manslayer. I like the illustration. And understand what I'm saying because it would be terrible to live through it. But Deuteronomy 19 uses an illustration that I like to invoke in talking about these cities. Two people are out cutting wood. They're friends. The axe handle flies off, hits the other person in the head, and kills him. Well, obviously you are not intending to murder him. You've not intended to do him damage. You're working together. You're friends in this particular regard. That's an illustration of what's meant in these cases. So there's a difference between cold-blooded murder and taking someone's life. Now let me make a tangent here though. I can remember a person telling me of the story. He said that that, uh, someone close to him had killed someone in a car accident. And he said there was absolutely nothing he could have done. He said the person, the person pulled out right in front of him. He could not stop. He, he did kill him. But he made this statement to my friend who was preaching. He said, I, I know I couldn't have done anything else. He said, I still see that man pay. And I wake up screaming at night. And he says, I do not know how anybody can live with taking another human being's life. He said, that which was something I could not prevent was so painful. I cannot see how anyone could do that. But... I do think that's a lesson to be learned from that. Um, And engaging in an act like that, we have to change totally the way we think to do it. It will distort our life forever thereafter. But the Bible says, the congregation in verse 24 is to judge between the slayer who seems to act in his own defense, and the blood avenger who apparently prosecutes the case. And it says, The congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the blood avenger, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he fled. He shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with holy oil. But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the border of his city of refuge to which he may flee, and the blood avenger finds him outside the border of his city of refuge, and the blood avenger kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood, because he should have remained in the city until the death of the high priest. After the death of the high priest, the manslayer shall return to the land of his possession. So, the point... You have to stay, if you're a manslayer, you have to stay in that city of refuge till the high priest dies. Um, if you are found outside the city, the blood of injury is not considered guilty of death 
when he takes your life. He's not considered guilty of death. He's not considered guilty of murder. Your blood uh, is on your own head. Did Sarah? I'm just wondering if outside of the city means outside of the city walls or outside of like the city and its pasturage. Like now that I, that I'm not sure that I I, I don't know how what they would have regarded outside the city. My my guess is it would be outside of this whole area because. You know, he might have some responsibilities to work in their vineyards. Yeah, it would be kind of hard to have to to work and provide if you can't literally leave the wall of the city for any reason to do yeah. to work for someone else because it, it's not your homeland that you're in. Yes, necessarily. But yeah, that's a good question. I just, I didn't come prepared for it, but that would be my guess as far as my answer there. Um, as he co- as he closes. Another point of law that's stated in verse 30. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. That is reiterated in the Old Testament and in the New quite frequently. A fundamental element of Israelite law didn't happen on the testimony of one witness. But in verse 31 and 32, you are not to take any ransom for the murderer. And he can't pay enough to get out of the death penalty for murder. Not to take any ransom for him. Were there crimes in Israel for which you could pay a ransom? Do you remember in Exodus 21, if your ox gored someone, you could be liable to the death penalty. But the ox gored someone, in that case, you could pay a price of redemption. You could pay a ransom. That's in Exodus 21 and verse 30 in context. But here in this particular case, no ransom could be paid. Blood pollutes the land, verse 33, and there is no expiation for the blood except for the blood of the one who was shed on it. And verse 34 emphasizes that the land is holy. You shall not defile the land in the midst of which you live where I dwell, for I, the Lord, am in the midst of the sons of Israel. God is in the land. The land is holy. Therefore, you are not to keep, not to keep, um, you're not to sanction murder. Murderers are to be put to death. By the way, I have a quote from Josephus that he used that often in the Old Testament, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, lex talionis law, that was, that did allow ransom payments. For example, if you maim someone and cut off their hand, you were to undergo the same unless the person who had suffered said, you give me this monetary compensation. The person who said that that was allowed, at least by practice among the Jews, in other cases, but not in cases of murder. Okay, now, let's deal with 
some key ideas. And also this will tie in to how Numbers 35 and this section that we've studied tonight tell us about Jesus. How does the promised land itself tell us about Jesus? There are a couple of passages in the New Testament. Hebrews 3 and uh, 1 Corinthians First Corinthians 10, 1 through 12, and Hebrews 3 and 4 that compare our journey to heaven to the journey to the promised land of Canaan. That, that in a way is kind of, uh, it's a real story, but it's an enacted parable of our journey to heaven as well. And the same things that stop us from entering, them from entering the promised land can happen to us. That's the point of 1 Corinthians 10 and those warnings that he gives. But let's look at this term. Now the term avenger. Now that, that may not sound so good, does it? Avenger. But you know, this is the same word that is translated redeemer often. It is the Hebrew term um, goel, goel, and um, it is used twenty-two times in Ruth. It is used ten times in Leviticus twenty-five. Often, God is described as Redeemer, particularly starting in Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 66. God is going to be called Redeemer continually. So this refers to God as Redeemer. And sometimes God is the subject. When this is used as a verb, God is the subject doing the redeeming. For example, in Exodus 6, verse 6, we see that. Uh, And and I'll give you some more passages in what we intend to hand out. So, and and I break down this word, he's translated Redeemer 18 times, Redeemed 22 times, Redeemed 25 times, Avenger 13 times. Now, What this Redeemer did, if it was a human being, what the Redeemer did is stated mainly in these passages. The Redeemer, the human Redeemer, or Avenger, and and this term is used I think seven times here in Numbers chapter 35, what they did is when a near relative sold a family piece of property they bought it they redeemed it now you read this in Leviticus 25 verses 23 through 28 also what they did is when a near relative sold themselves into slavery. And they sold themselves into slavery because of death. What you could do is you could buy them out of slavery. 
Leviticus 25. Pay a price, and they were released. Pay their debt, and they were released. So they, they bought a piece of land that had been in the family. The person was forced to sell because of economic necessity, or a person had sold himself into slavery. Now the book of Ruth shows also that they might marry a near relative's wife when um, they died without children. That's what Ruth shows. Ruth also shows us buying a piece of property. But Ruth also shows buying, redeeming that relative, marrying them. What, what, what we see in the book of Ruth that we wouldn't know about if we didn't have the book of Ruth is it's a principle from Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10 of Leveret marriage was extended to this, this Redeemer. And what we find here in Numbers 35, Numbers 35 addition to this picture, is they uh, avenged the death, the murder of a near relative. Now, isn't it interesting that, that all this is a picture of what God does for us? He buys us out of slavery. He buys our property back. He, he, he avenges His people who suffer. It's a picture of what God does. And it's a picture of what Jesus does in the New Testament. Jesus is described as our Redeemer in Ephesians 1.7, Colossians 1.13 and 14. Okay. Man, i got a couple of other past points here that are really good, really powerful, about how we would read about Christ in these cities of uh, refuge. But I'll tell you all, John's kind of in Hawaiian because I didn't leave him. Uh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna even just, I'm gonna just send him these points. I think, and maybe he can send them out. Well, I don't know how I'm gonna do it, but I'm gonna get. He's gonna get the opportunity to sum up a couple of other ways that that Numbers 35 and 36. Numbers 35 talks about Jesus as well as doing a daughter's. Of Zalapa hat. Are we going to say the dogs of Zalapa hat for Ryan? And Ryan started them. We, and, and, we and probably should. I just didn't know. So, uh, but even even here, we see about Jesus. And there are a couple of other points. And I want to admit one of these other points that I was making tonight when I woke up this morning, I wasn't thinking about making. And I looked at and said, "Ooh." <laughs> That's a good point. And uh, a writer pointed it out to me. Um, so just keep that in mind. And are you are we going to get on Wednesday night? Are you going to be numbers two numbers as well? Because that'll be it's still in March or is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. No, I, yeah. I've got my calendar yeah. mixed up. Yeah. So you'll still. Yeah. Okay. Two classes. We'll, okay. We'll finish up the quarter. Okay, guys. God bless and.